Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finran's Wake. I am with unwavering devotion to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. For your viewership, companionship, and unceasing support, dear listener, I wholeheartedly thank you. I'm so grateful that you've decided to tune into my modest little channel on which you'll soon discover the internet's best conversations are furtively being held. I'm joined today by a man of prodigious intellect and manifold talent with whom I've long wished to have a chat. Today marks the fulfillment of that wish. Uh, Dan Willingham is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, at which he's taught since the year of my birth, 1992. Initially, the focus of Professor Willingham's research was on the brain basis of learning and memory, topics into which we'll no doubt delve. Today, his focus has shifted to the application of cognitive psychology to K-16 or K-16 through education. Professor Willingham is the author of multiple fine books, most notably his best-selling 2009 work, why don't students like school? A question we've all asked ourselves. And more recently, outsmart your brain, onto which I was very eager to get my hands once it was available at the library, and which I'll soon make a purchase of through Amazon. An undisputed expert in his field, Professor Willingham was appointed by President Obama to serve as a member of the National Board for Education Sciences. I'll not strain the patience of my listeners any longer by enumerating all the other accolades with which you've been so deservedly showered. Uh, Professor Willingham, Dan, thank you so very much for agreeing to join me today. Uh, thanks so much, happy to be here. So I want to begin with my favorite activity than which I think there's none more satisfying and that's reading. Uh, I fear that our society, while technically literate on the whole, doesn't actually know how to read. That is, how to read for comprehension. Uh, an intellectual hero of mine, Mortimer Adler, sought to redress this problem many years ago when he wrote his instructive little work entitled, simply enough, How to Read a Book. Uh, in it, he outlines four levels of reading through which one can progress until he or she masters the art. Now, you suggest a different strategy in your book. You call it, or it's called, SQ3R, which sounds like it could be the adorable companion of a Star Wars drone. <laughs> uh, so if you would tell us the best way we should approach reading, if we're to do so, not merely to pass the time, but truly to learn and to possess the material before us. Yeah, and so to be clear, SQ3R is not my invention. I actually don't know who came up with this, but it's um, probably the most common of a family of strategies. Uh, and I should also mention, I think that there are, uh, we read for different purposes and there are different conventions uh, in different disciplines uh, regarding how to read. So SQ3R is, uh, again, one of a family of strategies that's useful to make sure that students have a, a relatively basic understanding of what an author has tried to communicate. It's not the kind of thing that you 
uh, would do would be taught in an English class, for example. And they, I think Adler is talking much more about how to read a work of uh, prose fiction uh, or a poem, perhaps. Uh, it's not the way you would tackle, you know, it doesn't have anything about the conventions of uh, reading that scientists use or that historians use. Uh, but what it's really meant to do is to keep a student's attention focused on what they're reading. We've all, of course, had the problem of, you know, you're, you feel like you're reading, your eyes are tracking, but you get to the bottom of a page and you realize I haven't been thinking about the content of this at all. My mind has just been elsewhere. So it's meant to uh, minimize the frequency of that happening. Uh, and then again, also to help you sort of um, understand at a, uh, a relatively comprehensive level. Uh, so all of these strategies, I won't get into the, the details of SQ3R in particular, because I don't think that that one's especially important, but all of these strategies ask you to do some sort of preparation, some sort of anticipation of what it is that you're gonna read. And that's usually in service of setting some sort of a goal for yourself. Uh, that's very important because there is research showing that the mindset that you have going into reading something really does affect the way that you read and understand it. So typically what you want to do, if you're a student and you're doing a typical sort of student D reading, you're reading a textbook or, uh, you know, it's going to be nonfiction, it's going to be technical, it's going to be uh, content that's new to you. Um, the idea is that you set yourself some questions related to what am I expecting to learn from this? Uh, so one, the, probably the best way to um, uh, figure out what those questions ought to be is you look at the title, you look at the headings and the subheadings. And from that, you know, it, I think the example I gave in the book was some like uh, David Marr's philosophy of science. Like if that's one of the headings, then you think to yourself, all right, like I'm going to find out what his philosophy of science was, perhaps compare it to other, uh, other ideas about that topic and so on. So you start off with those questions. And then as you're reading, you're trying to answer the questions. And of course, it's possible that you set yourself bad questions that are not real. You know, you're guessing you haven't, you haven't read yet. So uh, uh, that's one thing you might figure out as you go is, oh, these actually weren't very good questions. So you're trying to determine whether or not they're good questions. And if they are good questions, what are the answers to those questions? And would you say it's important for the reader, him or herself, to establish those questions? Does it sort of invest him or her in, in the process? I think it's useful for sure. I mean, part of it too is that so I guess you're the, implicitly you're asking if the author provides questions beforehand, should you use those? It's probably not a terrible idea to use them. But another thing you could do if you want to still reap some of the cognitive benefits, you could look at the, um, you know, do the scanning that I described and say, okay, now I'm, now I'm going to look at the author's questions having done that scan. Are these the questions that I would have come up with? Um, maybe your questions are pretty good too, right? In addition, so no reason not to use those as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that it that it puts a little flesh into the game when you uh, become as active a participant as possible in the in the reading process. Um, so far, yeah, so far as I can understand. Um, so, uh, with that being said. Um, 
there's there's a fair amount of pre-planning, right? You want to enter into a, a reading project or an experience somewhat strategically, at least when it's a, a work of nonfiction. But while you're immersed in the reading process, tell us what are some of the activities that are most beneficial for the retention of the, the information while you are immersed? Um, should you take marginal notes? Should you highlight underline? Should you make note cards contemporaneously to which you can return later on? I So that we, there's lots and lots of research on highlighting and highlighting is not very effective. It's by far the most common activity that people engage in. And it's easy to see why people would do that. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't cost you very much. It's relatively easy to do. Uh, and it feels like you're saving time later. Uh, you know, you're saving future time because you know what you should return to. Uh, but what the research indicates is that people are not very skillful in their highlighting. Uh, they tend to highlight facts and uh, definitions. Uh, and it's easy to see why that would be. People, um, there's no reason to expect that if you're reading something that's new to you and is pretty challenging and technical that you're going to understand it all that deeply the first time that you read it. So highlighting might be fine if you're, you already have a fair amount of expertise in something uh, and you're, you know, a new document or uh, reading comes your way, then highlighting probably makes sense. Um, but if you're, if you're a relative novice, as you usually are when you're a student, you're better off taking notes. Um, you could do it on note cards. I mean, I think this is an instance where taking taking notes electronically probably makes sense because you're probably going to want to edit them later. As you learn more and revisit those notes, you're probably going to want to change things around as your uh, understanding gets deeper. So that, that's one thing. There are two things I would suggest you really focus on. Taking notes is definitely a good idea, and that's the format in which I would think about doing it. The second thing that people tend not to do when they read is to coordinate meaning across paragraphs and across sections. They tend to read sort of sentence by sentence. And if they're understanding each sentence, their sort of self-evaluation of their comprehension is pretty good. They figure like, I'm getting it. Every sentence is making sense. And what they're not doing is pausing a moment and thinking, okay, so what did this whole paragraph mean? And how do I interpret that in light of everything I've read in this section up until now? And then same thing when you complete a section, what was the big, you know, you get to the end of the David Marr philosophy of science. Okay, so what was his philosophy? And why did the author talk about that? Am I supposed to contrast that with, you know, the previous section? Or where does that fit into the larger message? Um, that sounds like, gosh, that seems like a lot of work. And, and it is, right? I mean, like you can't expect that you're going to come to deep understanding without doing that work. Um, but that's probably what you're supposed to get out of the text. And so you got to do, do that work sometime. It's not going to be easier later, right? So you may as well do it now. Right. And I think a lot of times students are misled by the assignment. They're, they're told, okay, well, you must read chapter three. Uh, on the topic of whatever it might be. So they think, okay, that's 10 pages in length. That'll take me about this amount of time. So let's read it. But the really, truly strategic and comprehensive way might be, okay, paragraph by paragraph, annotated at the end. I think Benjamin Franklin used to talk about, you know, how he would come to an understanding of, of a certain text. And he wasn't 
formally extensively schooled, but he would annotate at the end of, you know, a, a, a section, a passage, or even a, a single paragraph, and then, you know, at the very end, at the conclusion of the the text or of the chapter, bring everything together and consolidate it. It's funny when you you mention highlighting. I mean, I, I'm still a, a bibliophile. I have tons of books, used books, typically to <laughs> for the for the uh, inexpensive of them coming into my house from Amazon, and and I often receive them marked almost to a point of um, indecipherability with with highlighter, you know, with highlighter, and it, it's like a palimpsest. <laughs> In some ways, there's something uh, kind of neat about receiving someone else's or what was someone else's treasure, <laughs> um, which they certainly. Um, uh, um, let go all their their thoughts and their scribbles and their and their highlighter marks marks, but I think it also uh, leads the the student to think that there's something important here that he's missing. I've often found that to be the case. I'm reading a passage, and I like to think I'm a more discerning reader, and and I'll read a passage that's you know vigorously highlighted, almost such that the the, the ink is pouring through the other side. And it, it's like an inconsequential passage. And I think in your book, you talk about this, the fact that uh, when they did their research, they went into the bookstore, they looked at a multitude of books and found that the highlighted sections were often, you know, of, of some import, but certainly not of central importance to the, to the message of the work. So beware anytime you receive a book <laughs> secondhand or, or used, if it's highlighted, it might act, actually... Um, be, be worth reading. Uh, let me ask you, there's always a debate amongst readers and uh, maybe students as well uh, about how to approach the, the, the sanctity of a book, right? I've, I've heard it described as a carnal approach or a, or a more chivalrous approach. <laughs> I just read that recently. Now, I, for one, I'm pen in hand, pencil in hand, underlining, writing in the margins. I'm very active in my reading. And that's, a, that's, um, that's something that I've adopted through the course of time. I find it to be, to be most conducive to, to the retention of the information. But some people treat their books um, with, a, with a greater sense of purity than I do. So uh, tell me, you personally, are you more of a carnal reader, reader or a chivalrous reader? I'm more of a carnal reader. And... Like you, I think that's, uh, I don't know of any research on this topic, um, so I don't have any guidance that way. And so I encourage students to sort of experiment a little bit and see what, what feels right to you. Um, but, and I've tried various things, but I, I tend to take most of my notes in the back of the book. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, and then I have page numbers, annotates what, like what the what the note goes with, and I might put a tick mark here and there. But margins usually aren't big enough. If I if I got something I want to write down, if I try and squeeze it into the margin, I won't be able to read it later. Yeah, yeah. The the only trouble is when the, the publisher constrains you with only a few back end end pages <laughs> of which in to make. Stingy publishers, it's really a problem. <laughs> it's it's an issue. Yeah. So. I usually do is I'll usually write, depending on how limited that space really is. I'll I'll write the you know new vocabulary words or just like big phrases or you know terms that can be that can be researched. And I try as best I can to write in the margins um, because I have kind of faint and dainty little handwriting. So it usually works uh, well enough for me. But, but the other thing, Daniel, that, that I have a problem with is that then 
I can't readily find all of my notes because all I'll remember is, oh, I had some interesting observation that was to do with creativity or something. I think it was this in this book. That may be as much as my memory gives me. So if all of my notes are in the back of the book, then it's very easy for me to check. But if they're in the margins, then there's a cost. Oh, well, then that's when I dog ear the page. <laughs> wow. Wow, you are super carnal. You're super for a mess. Oh my gosh, carnal too. It's uh, embarrassing. Yeah, it shouldn't be in, in civil society with how right. carnal my approach is. No, but it's funny how we all sort of establish, if we're devoted readers, we all sort of establish our own approach. So mine is like, you know, marginalia. And then if it's really important, it gets a star. And if it's extremely important it gets a star an asterisk with with a circle around it and if it's supremely important it gets the dog ear fold and that's when i know it's it's a page to which i just have to return at some point later on yeah but i'll have to adapt your technique do you ever take pictures with your phone of an entire page or a passage and maybe store them in an electronic archive of some sort i've done that and i find i i tend not to consult those notes i think there's a false for me anyway, I end up with a false sense of having really captured something important. Um, and then I, I've essentially offloaded the memory to uh, a, an electronic device and mm -hmm. then I just lose track of it and I don't consult it again. Yeah, much like the the photographs that we take on our <laughs> on our on our iPhones and our Androids, you know, they they immediately vanish into the ether if not shared <laughs> with, a, exactly. with a friend. Uh, now, you mentioned in your book that rereading a particular chapter or the entire text doesn't really aid in your comprehension of the material. Now, you might think that rereading strengthens your ability to recall much in the same way that a, that a biceps curl might increase the strength of your arm, but it seems not to be the case. So I ask you, why is it that rereading a passage or a text is of so little benefit and what are some of the other mistakes we make when when trying to grasp a text? So there, there you actually said two different things there, and it's, it's a very important distinction to make. Rereading does help comprehension or can help comprehension. So in other words, if you read something and you think, I didn't really get that section very well, absolutely you should reread it and uh, you know try to um, you know, be resourceful in coming at it a different way. Was there vocabulary you didn't get? Was there some syntax that was difficult to unravel? Do you need to, maybe you need a little bit of background knowledge on uh, on this topic. Even if you know the vocabulary, uh, there's some, some background that you're missing. Uh, and so rereading is a good idea there, but rereading does not help memory nearly as much as people expect it to. Uh, our expectation is, and this is the most common study strategy that students use, is they reread their textbook, they reread their notes. Uh, and rereading leads to an increased sense of familiarity. So familiarity is a, a type of memory, but it's not the type of memory that will support the type of recall that you're going to be expected to do on a test. Familiar, psychologists use the term familiarity the way it's used in everyday conversation. When I say Daniel looks familiar or that guy looks familiar, I mean I can't, I can't tell you anything else about him other than that I've seen him before. Uh, and so familiarity is that type of memory, and that's the type of memory that rereading really boosts. It 
it makes things feel more, as you're reading, everything feels more fluent. And therefore, that's easily mistaken for like, oh, yeah, no, I got this. No problem. I've read this a million times. This is, you know, this is easy stuff for me. Uh, but that doesn't mean that once the book is out of sight, you're going to be able to talk intelligently about, about that content. So instead, what you want to do is actually what I just described is a great way of both seeing whether or not you've got the content and committing it to memory. Put the book away, try to talk about it as if you are teaching somebody. Uh, you can do this as you're reading, if, especially, I mean, it's, a, it's sort of an extra thing to do. So it might be something you want to do the second time through. Read a paragraph, look away, and then explain to somebody else the, con the summary of that paragraph. Now, the downside of doing what I just did, the, the good thing about doing what I just described, it's a nice stepping stone, but it's probably not enough um, if you're studying for a test. Uh, the nice thing about it is you're, you're putting it in your own words. Uh, you are having to call it up from memory. The downside is you just got finished reading it. So it's still sort of rattling around in working memory. Ultimately, you want to get to a place where you can do the same thing, summarize a chapter or a section when you haven't looked at that content in the last 30 minutes or so. So it turns out, and I'll, I'll be brief with this, uh, it turns out that probing memory is actually a really good way to affix something that's in memory but is in sort of a fragile state. And students do test themselves but they test themselves mostly to see whether or not they know something, see if they're done. They don't think of testing themselves as a way of trying to commit something to memory, but it's actually better than studying. For so, that so that technique of probing memory, you say that you should allow about 30 minutes to elapse before you undertake that? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, a if you're, if you're testing yourself for the purpose of committing something to memory, you don't need to wait 30 minutes. You can do that anytime. As long as the content's not right in front of you, um, you, can, you can do that and it's, it's going to help. If you want to know, do I really know something? Then you want to be sure that it's really fully cleared out of working memory. I, I say 30 minutes in the book. It might be, you know, 20 might be fine. There's no fixed figure, uh, but it should be a little while. Okay, so should, you should let a little bit of time elapse before that. Um, yeah. And so we know that familiarity breeds contempt. Now we also know that <laughs> familiarity is, is a deceitful friend. Uh, we, we bust it really is, yeah. on guard against familiarity uh, for the reasons that you listed. Um, another thing on which uh, we must, uh, against which we must be on guard is procrastination. I'm making a little bit of a jump here from, from those um, prescriptions on how we should best read to how we should um, get to reading and get to the projects before us. So it's one of the mental uh, vices to which I know that I am hopelessly susceptible. <laughs> and I'm sure if I know my audience, it's something against which they too are uh, defenseless. So uh, I console myself by remembering the words of uh, the great 20th century American humorist Don Marquise, who cleverly reframed procrastination as the art of keeping up with yesterday. <laughs> so in your book, you give advice on how procrastination might be combated. Uh, how do you combat procrastination and how do you encourage others to do so? 
I have a few different uh, techniques that I use. Um, probably the most important uh, and the one that I, uh, this is the long game. Uh, the most important is to make work truly a habit. Uh, and by that, I mean, habits are, are so powerful because procrastination happens when you are making a choice. Procrastination is the act of choosing, knowing I should probably do A and doing B instead, uh, usually because A sounds like it's going to be pretty unpleasant and B sounds a whole lot more pleasant. Uh, the sort of everyday understanding of why we pr would procrastinate aligns quite well with what researchers uh, have found about why people procrastinate. You procrastinate because video games are fun and doing my chemistry problem set sounds like it's gonna suck. So like, why wouldn't I play video games, right? Um, so the, the great thing about habits is, you know, if you've got the habit of flossing your teeth, you don't decide every night, should I floss or should I not floss? Uh, you just find yourself doing it. And so removing that choice is by far the best way to procrastinate. This is why I think I mentioned this um, in the book. Uh, graduate schools, at least the graduate schools that I'm familiar with, uh, faculty frequently have a slight preference for people who've actually been out of college, been in the working world for a year or two, because they know that nine to five mindset. You don't like decide, is it worth going to work today? Uh, and there are college students who sort of think, of, is it worth going to class? Like, mm. should I go to class or not go to class? Uh, and that's, you know, that's death, right? That you, you, you can't have that in graduate school. It's almost so, the question is, given, the, given the cost of attendance, it's almost unthinkable that <laughs> that still is even an option. But yeah, that yeah, that's a whole other yeah, that's a whole other set of considerations. You're absolutely right. Um, so the the. Uh, I talk a little bit in the book about creating those sorts of habits and, and there's been lots of work and there's some great books on habits. And so I probably don't need to go into it in much depth with your audience, but you know, the idea of chaining is I think very valid, sort of connecting it to something that you already do. Um, but then some other uh, ideas that might be new to your audience. One of the most powerful set of ideas uh, actually comes out of exercise science and studies showing that part of the reason we procrastinate is that the unpleasantness of the task is usually overestimated. So when you ask people, do you exercise? No, I don't like to exercise. Why? Oh, well, you get all sweaty and you feel terrible and so on. You bring them into the lab and you say, okay, you're going to be on this treadmill and this is how fast you're going to go. Scale of one to 10, after 15 minutes, how do you think you're going to feel? And people give their rating and then they actually do it. And at the time, you, you know, after 15 minutes, you say, okay, how do you feel? And what you find is people are like, this actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was gonna be. Uh, so one secret is to both recognize that and then also just start. You know, if you can trick yourself into just starting something and eliminate, you know, give yourself, and, and then one way to trick yourself is to give yourself permission to quit if you're really miserable. If this really stinks, I'll take a break. Like right now, my plan is I'm going to work for 20 minutes. Then I'm going to have a three-minute break. But you know what? If I'm hating this after eight minutes, I'll let myself take the break right away. Uh, and of course, you have to follow through. You have to like if if it really you know, it doesn't work. If you know you're just you know telling yourself that, you have to actually give yourself permission to do that. Uh, but what you'll find is you frequently will um, uh, you will keep going. Another thing you can do is reframe your choice. 
So anytime you procrastinate, you are actually giving up on the opportunity to feel good about having this task that you need to do hanging over your head. So sometimes I'll say to my, you know, I'll have something that, you know, do journal article review I'm supposed to do, which I really don't want to do. Uh, but then the other thing I could do is prepare for class, which is really fun, right? And that's, you know, everyone's familiar with the idea of productive procrastination, where, you know, you, you know, like, I need to, well, I can't do anything until I clean up this desk, or like, I've got to bake some cookies now, or clean my room, or whatever it is, right? So that's my version of productive procrastination, is preparing for class. So but sometimes I tell myself, I'm sorry, that's far more productive than my procrastination. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I could employ something as, as useful as, as that. Well, I, I, may, I may be overestimating the, the, the uh, frequency with which that's the task that I choose to productively procrastinate. But let's leave that alone, Daniel. That's a, I'm not the focus here. I'm not the focus here. Um, so what I'll do is I'll say to myself, okay, should I prepare for class and then I will still have that article hanging over my head or should i go ahead and knock off that article give myself the opportunity you know to sort of talk myself through what 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 i'm actually giving up by procrastinating which is the possibility of just having this unpleasant task over with uh and then the the last thing i'll mention is uh, i think everyone's familiar with the small bites idea so there's no reason to get into that but another idea that people might not be familiar with is the possibility that you're, you're procrastinating as a, me, as a way of self-handicapping. That if you know that if there's something that I'm, I'm worried that even if I, if I do try really hard at this, it's still not going to go very well. Uh, and so procrastination is a way of imposing a handicap on your performance so that, for example, if you're worried about a math test, you think you're not very good at math, you know, then in the end, you'll be able to say, well, yeah, I didn't do very well on the test, but that's because I had no time to study because I had all this other, you know, I had to clean my room and bake brownies and all this other stuff. Or even if, you know, you might berate yourself, oh my gosh, I'm terrible, I'm such a procrastinator. Uh, and I, I, therefore I had no time to study. So, you know, think about that, you know, just, um, uh, sit with that idea for a moment. There might be, there might be moments where you're self-handicapping uh, and procrastinate. That's the source of procrastination. And then that's a different conversation. Yeah. I, I think as I reflect on all of these, all of these means of procrastination that you just enumerated, I think I'm most guilty of the self-handicapping actually. <laughs> um, and I absolutely can, can um, remark upon multiple times during the course of a day of a week of a month when, when I employ that technique, unconsciously right yeah. it's, it's because of usually a lack of confidence in in the outcome if i'm uncertain about exactly what i'm doing uh, maybe it's in preparation of a for a for a podcast episode like this or writing a script for some project on which i plan to be working you know because i don't know exactly if the outcome will be as i wish it to be I think that's when I begin to procrastinate. <laughs> and though I'm not baking uh, cookies nor brownies, I'm, I'm certainly doing things that are not in any way productive. Uh, I wanted to, to remark just briefly um, in response to some of the things that you said. Uh, you talked about habit formation. And of course, that's there are techniques with which my audience will be generally familiar. Um, but I was reminded when reading your book of James Clear's great, great book, The you know, Atomic Habits. So for reference, if anyone needs that, 
pick up uh, Mr. Clear's book and, and thumb through it. And he talks at, at length about habit stacking. So doing, you know, maybe a thing that is less desirable after a thing that is more desirable or maybe vice versa in order to sort of encourage and reward yourself for having done it. Um, and you mentioned another thing, which was um, the anticipatory um, aversion to, to doing something that you think would be uh, unpleasant. Uh, now this reminds me, or maybe a remedy to this reminds me of the approach of the Stoics, which was sort of to, if I can use the term, kind of swallow a frog at the outset of every day. You almost want to mentally undergo the least pleasant thing possible. In that age, it was swallowing a frog. <laughs> In this day and age, you can probably imagine your own. <laughs> um, you want to you want to do that immediately upon arising. Now it's it's not the sort of jauntiest way to get up out of bed, but the the purpose of so doing was to to get that that unpleasantness out of the way. So anything thereafter would be tolerable <laughs> in comparison. And I always thought that's again not the most romantic way to get out of bed, but but maybe useful in in um, responding to to the procrastination that accompanies um, that, that sense of aversion. Any thoughts about either of those, uh, those two geniuses, one modern, one ancient, Aurelius or uh, James Clear? So, yeah, well, I'll, I'll say I, I liked Clear's book very much, and um, I read it several years ago, so some of the details are lost to me. I will say what I remember thinking is that some of the psychology I would not agree with a thousand percent, but like all of the advice I thought was really good. Um, I, it's probably my favorite habits book. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, I, I I agree with you. I think that I think that's a that's a good choice. Uh, when it comes to eating a frog, I mean, I think this is one one of the things I tried. To, it's funny. That's a funny way to start a sentence. When it comes to eating a frog, uh, yes. What is your um, technique? <laughs> I should say. I should say. Let me interrupt. You um, you include in the book a beautiful graphic of how to prepare or the different ways in which you can prepare, prepare meat was, are you a carnivore? Or are you a, a connoisseur of, of, of meats? Because I found that, that table to be really actually quite useful. And uh, oh, terrific. Um, yeah. yeah. I needed an example and uh, food. I, uh, I, I like to cook. And so food science seemed a, a natural one. I don't talk about cooking a frog. I, um, that may, if there's ever a second edition, I promise you. In the appendix, yeah. we can add that. Yeah. That, that's a great idea. Yeah. This would be a few, a few recipes. Um, so I, I think that, uh, Generally, uh, one thing I'll add about the frog idea is that uh, in addition to like it, it sort of reset in, in so cognitive psychology would say you're resetting your baseline. Mm -hmm. It's like what's pleasant and unpleasant for the rest of the day. Everything's better than the frog. And so, you know, if, if unpleasantness is rating, you know, from one to 10, well, if the first thing I do is jog a mile, then that becomes like, oh, that was really unpleasant. Then even the frog's even worse, right? So it's like you, you sort of recalibrate your scale by eating the frog. The other thing I think it does for you is it, it may change your self-perception a little bit. It may, you know, say like, you know what? I'm the kind of guy who like, if there's a frog to be eaten, I just eat the damn frog right away. And like, I'm kind of a bad mother, you know, uh, I'm right. I'm kind of, I'm pretty tough here. And so- yes. Uh, that that really may kind of do something for your self-esteem and your self-image and then make you more ready to take on 
whatever else comes your way during the day. Yeah, let's just hope that you don't, in time, acquire a taste for the frog, and then the, the unpleasantness is uh, is blunted. Yeah, I'm the wrong type of psychologist for that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, you'll need to seek somebody, uh, some specialty. Uh, right. So let's jump back to memory just for a moment. So you're famous for having described memory as the residue of thought, which is a wonderful image. Uh, I like to think of uh, memory as like an invisible diary that we carry around everywhere with us, into which only a precious few um thoughts are are ever entered so what do you mean when you describe memory as being the the residue of thought what i essentially mean is that a lot of what's in memory or not it's not essentially what i mean uh, an implication uh is that a lot of what's in memory is not precious and this is what is so interesting about memory is that it is so insensitive to our needs and there are things that you really want to remember that you don't remember. And there are things that you don't care at all about remembering. You know, various childhood advertising jingles and so on that do stick with you. Uh, and that's, that's where memory is the residue of thought um, is, is meant to sort of summarize that, that what you, the most important um, factor in whether or not you remember something is the way in which you think about it at the time you experiencing it, uh, you experience it. Um, things that we think about deeply and deeply meaning, uh, we think about the meaning of them and we relate them to other things that we know. Those are the things that we're very likely to remember in the future. Things that we remember, uh, things that we think about in kind of a shallow way. Uh, we're not very likely to remember. So the classic uh, demonstration of this, uh, which is due to a psychologist named Nickerson, is asking people to draw a penny. And if you ask people, do you know what a penny looks like? They'll, of course, say yes. And if you ever want to have some fun with a group of people, pass out pieces of paper with a circle on each piece of paper and say, here's a pen. Draw me what a penny looks like. Uh, and the results are hilarious. People can't remember which way Lincoln faces. I mean, do you, do you even think that your students now could even, uh, would even know that Lincoln is on a penny? I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know how many students of a certain age have even interacted physically with a, with a solid penny. <laughs> it, it's a great, yeah, it's a great point that, right, who uses, uh, how much do we use cash now? So you can do a different demonstration with students, which is, where the letters are on a phone dial. So, mm. you know, where, which, which, uh, where is the J on, uh, on a phone dial? Um, anyway, the, what that's meant to show is repetition, which is what we usually think of as being super important for memory, is important for memory, but it's not everything. Uh, if you're not thinking about, if you never think about like which way Lincoln faces and you know what what is printed on the penny and where is the date, if you never think about that, it does not matter how many times a penny is in your gaze, it's not going to stick with you. You have to you have to think about what things mean in order to remember them, but you don't have to want to remember anything. As long as you're thinking about what it means, you'll remember whether you intend to remember or not. Yeah, and you're emph emphatic on that point in your book about meaning and the importance of meaning in in ensuring in, in memories. Uh, it's so funny because there are, <laughs> are so many things of which I have vivid memories, uh, but to which I gave, you know, at the time, absolutely no deliberate thought. 
like you said, childhood jingles, uh, you know, yeah. little songs. Uh, tell me, what is one memory that you have, maybe from your youth, that is absolutely insignificant? You wish that it, it didn't occupy any space <laughs> in your brain, but it does. Yeah. Get it out. Um, I mean, I think, I think advertising jingles are a good example. And uh, it's not completely understood why music makes things so memorable. It, it probably is providing, I mean, this would get more technical than your audience would be interested in. It's probably providing some extra cues at the time you're trying to dredge something out of memory. But yeah, the Bumblebee tuna jingle from the 70s, like I could live without that really. Uh, <laughs> occupying space in my, there is that feeling, especially like, yeah, I just turned 62 yesterday. So oh, I started to think, happy birthday. You, Thank you. you. You start to think about aging, right? And you're like, well, we got so many neurons left and the damn tuna song is like taking up six. Or and something. then you have the, the mercury from the tuna, you know, into Oh my gosh, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. So could, would you be willing to sing for us? <laughs> no, I absolutely would not. Because I actually, I don't know the Bumblebee tuna song. I'm, I'm trying to oh, think. Well, I'm sure it's on YouTube. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it is. Uh, yeah, that's not really widely advertised nowadays. I, I can't yeah, tell you the last time I've seen a, a tuna uh, commercial. <laughs> oh, man. I can think of, uh, there was an auto parts store called O'Reilly. Uh, I, I don't oh, know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I oh, think it's O'Reilly. Oh, oh, <laughs> you have a wonderful voice. Yeah, so it was the O'Reilly, you know, auto parts. Again, uh, you know, that the, the, the space in my brain is precious and so many other things could probably fit into that little pin-sized area where, where O'Reilly is uh, reigning <laughs> with an ironclad uh, grip, but he won't, uh, won't give up. He won't be, he won't be removed. <laughs> uh, so, again, that memory as the residue of thought, things that you want to remember or don't want to remember, um, sometimes it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I want to turn now to following your passion and following your purpose. This is something about which you talk toward the end of your book. Yeah. So as a beloved professor at the University of Virginia, a fact to which countless five-star reviews on your Rate My Professor page will attest, I scanned them earlier today. <laughs> I'm sure that many students seek you for advice on their careers. Now, I have no doubt that the majority of these students has been told at some point in their lives that they should simply follow their passion, right? Uh, but you tell them, or I, I assume you tell them that, that maybe that's not the best way to go about choosing and pursuing a career or a life. Uh, you differentiate between following one's passion and following one's purpose. So can you maybe expand on that differentiation and that idea a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. And this is, there's been some brilliant work uh, by a number of uh, social psychologists on this in the last five years or so. Uh, and the distinction is exactly as you described. Uh, passion sounds like exactly what you uh, expect it to be, that it's, it's something that you care deeply about um, and uh, feel strongly about. And, and most often it's associated with, um, you know, feeling a lot of pleasure in undertaking the activity. So, you know, people are passionate about playing a, a musical instrument or passionate about acting or passionate about chemistry or whatever it is. Uh, but when you look at the research on happiness with career choice and the extent to which people day to day feel satisfied 
Um, purpose is a much better predictor. So feeling that you are contributing to something larger than yourself, that's what makes people um, feel really good about what they do day to day. Um, and I, you know, I think beautiful example of this is that there are people who are in professions that to outsiders sound, you know, candidly kind of terrible. Like uh, the, the one that always sticks with me is when in an emergency room uh, surgery unit where, you know, everyone comes bustling in and there's been a horrible accident and, um, you know, people are you know, throwing gauze and just like, it's making a, a horrible mess and their bodily fluids and blood and, you know, on the floor and so on. Someone has to come in and clean that up and make it sterile for the next person, uh, you know, the, uh, the next operation. And uh, researchers have talked with the people who do this work. Uh, and of course, if, if you really, really hate it, you're not gonna be in that job. But the people who are in it, um, actually report feeling very strongly about it and very positively. Uh, and it's not once they say why, it's very easy to understand. They, they see themselves as part of the team, as of course they are. And it's easy to discount, like not even think about the fact, like you're focused on the doctors and nurses who are in there saving the life. And you're not thinking about all the people who support the doctors and nurses. Uh, but this person understands I'm a critical part of this team. Uh, and what a, you know, what a purpose-driven uh, profession that is. Uh, so that, that's, yeah, that, uh, and, and, and it does also, I think, give you a slightly different spin on when you think about passion. Passion may be something of a guide, but frequently the reason passion is a guide is because it's correlated with purpose. If you're very passionate about something, you want everyone to you know, everyone else to understand how wonderful this is. Like we should all appreciate oboe music or whatever it is, right? You want you want to share that with the world. Yeah, and that was my intuition when I was reading your your book. Uh, and uh, I think you you basically you 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 explained that uh, you explained it beautifully just now. But I think you explained it also very well in the book that there is some you know they're not inextricable. Your passion in many ways motivates your purpose. Um, it's, yeah, you, you mentioned that. I mean, it, the role of the orderly or the, the tech who's working in that emergency room, that blood-stained emergency room, you know, is a relatively unglamorous figure. George Clooney won't be portraying him on ER, <laughs> or, you know, or, or any other square-jawed, handsome actor. Won't be the orderly who's on his hands and knees and, you know, scrubbing away the, the whatever it is, the bacterial infection that oozed out of a wound, um, but is as integral to the to the collectivity to the team as any other um, member if let me ask you if you find as a as a listener or, or as you know an audience member if you find yourself in a position that you feel is maybe beneath you or um i don't know not quite to your liking is there a way to trick yourself into into feeling purposeful in that role from a psychological standpoint? That's a great question. And uh, candidly, it's, it's not one I've thought about before. It feels like there ought to be, um, but I, I, I don't know of any research on that subject if, if it exists. Um, certainly it would be worth 
try, you know, just trying to be mindful of that and thinking, what happens if I'm not here? Like, you know, here I am doing this thing I don't really want to do. What would happen if I and everybody else just topped out and said, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to clean this ER floor. This is terrible. Um, that might help you think um, more productively about your, your role as a team member. I think also it's a, it is a very individual thing. I mean, I think there are things that like I could not see myself doing that job. I totally understand the mindset intellectually, but like that wouldn't be me. I think there are things that I do that are, you know, I hate to say comparable, but there are things that likewise other people would never want to do um, at a smaller scale that make sense for me that I, I see myself uh, like I'm competent in this area. I mean, to, again, uh, like I'm, I'm sheepish raising it because we've, we've given in a, I don't, I don't want to, you know, turn this mythical cleaner of an emergency room into a saint, right? That that's sort of going too much in the other direction, but also feel weird, like comparing myself to anyway, you get the idea. <laughs> but there are things I do at work that are, you know, voluntary that other people just don't want to do. And for which I, you know, I don't get any, you know, reward really, other than feeling like this is important. Like somebody should be doing this. Like students will, will really benefit if someone does this. So I'm going to do it. Um, and you know, other people do other things. So I think that's the other way to think about it is, you know, pick your spots. And you maybe, maybe the thing you're doing right now that you're trying to talk yourself into, if it is optional, maybe it's not for you. Like maybe there's something else that plays more to your strengths. Uh, that uh, that would be a better way to make a contribution. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent advice, and it's a really uh, intriguing prospect. This idea of maybe uh, trying to deceive yourself into into a purposeful occupation or 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 living into that world of of purpose, because I think increasingly, I think we've known this um, maybe in a almost in a pre-scientific traditional way, but we know that a purpose-driven life is going to lead to human flourishing. And I think now we're seeing quite the opposite, which is the the loss of purpose in a lot of different ways. The loss of purpose in careers and lives and families. You know, there there again, this is a a deeper conversation that that we don't need to to pursue. But I, I see so many. Connections between your work and other the works of other psychologists that popular psychologists that I've read, and the and in conjunction with traditional wisdom that you know we all imbibe and we absorb from the great books and from the past and from our heritage, that purpose is really core. It has to be fundamental to to what we do and to who we are, and and only in that way I think will we will we achieve flourishing. Yeah, I think that's that's very well said, and I think um, it's very timely. I mean, I think times of turmoil are times that we that make us question, you know, what why am I here? What is my contribution? What you know, and what what direction are we all headed? Uh, and I think it it's fair to say these are times of turmoil. Mm. Yeah, undoubtedly, with all the shootings and all of the carnage and all of the difficult situations in which we find ourselves, I, I agree completely. Uh, so let me ask you, if sort of on that note, if for maybe 30 seconds time, you had the attention of of every American student, you know, high school or college aged, um, what is the advice you might give to to them, to that population? 
Yeah, I would say uh, persist because you're capable of much more than you think you are, but it, it is difficult. Don't kid yourself. Uh, and anybody who tells you there's, you know, there's a way that you can become good at something, become knowledgeable without working hard, uh, has got something to sell you. That said, you can become very good at something. You can become very knowledgeable, not only about something, but about lots of things. Uh, it just, it takes work and uh, work like anything else is, is a skill that you acquire. It gets, the, the hard work becomes easier as you stick with it, but it's worth it. So persistence. And to those who feel as though they are maybe intellectually deficient or, or maybe they feel as though they're, they're not quite smart enough, what would you say to them? I would say, everybody, first of all, everybody feels that way sometimes. Uh, second of all, everybody's smart at some stuff and not so smart at other stuff. Uh, the third thing I would say is, the, and this is by far the most important, no matter how smart or not very smart you are, you can always be smarter. Everybody is always focused on the other people for whom it seems easier. And it doesn't matter how accomplished that person is, there's always somebody who they perceive to be ahead of them. And when you put it that way, it's sort of obvious. It's completely unproductive. Uh, the only uh, thing that matters, the only comparison that matters is where you are today relative to where you were last week and where you want to be next week. And you can always improve yourself. Yeah. And one of the best ways that you can improve yourself is to pick up Dan's fine book, Outsmart Your Brain. Uh, well, I hardly <laughs> Uh, you know, on the route. I don't know where I was going with that, Daniel, but if you want to bring it up. <laughs> oh, undoubtedly. Because, like you said, along with persisting, you need, you need to, to move in a direction strategically. And I think by implementing your advice, you'll be able to do that. I, I think I read a, a Twitter follower of yours who said, man, I, I wish that I had this book 28 years ago when I was in school. And though I'm not quite 28 years removed from, from school, I, I share that wish. I mean, I wish that I had this information at my hands. I hope it gets into a, a large portion of the American student body's hands because I think it will be of absolute invaluable um, um, importance to, to everybody who's trying to, to be a little bit smarter, to be a little bit more intelligent and not to measure him or herself against you know, the mass of, of humanity. So one more question before we depart, and you've been very generous with your time. While scanning the many laudatory comments on your Rate My Professor page, I noticed a remark that was oft repeated that you're an accomplished teller of jokes or or at least a funnier than average professor. <laughs> so uh, is the introduction of humor in the classroom strategic or, you know, as a means to, to, uh, by which to enhance learning, or is it just your personality bursting through and, and making itself known? Uh, it, yeah, it's personality. Um, I'm a jokey person. Um, I, and I mean, I think it's, it, it's certainly partly by design to, um, Try and keep the atmosphere in the classroom a little bit lighter. I will. I will tell you um, when I first started teaching, um, I 
I try very hard to restrain myself from telling jokes because I found, uh, and maybe it was to do with my age, I don't know, but I found that it, um, they did not land as often. It may have also just been like my lack of confidence. I don't know. Maybe I was less funny then. God knows. But uh, I, uh, and, and I tell my students now, the graduate students who are um, preparing for teaching, uh, I tell them, you know, it's probably best not to tell a lot of jokes because when they, if they don't, first of all, a lot of students will think something's funny. Actually, I remember that now, now that you bring it up. I remember, you know, on occasion when I would tell jokes, people saying like, oh, he's so funny. Oh, this and that. And I'm like, why don't you laugh during class like no when you sat there like nothing and like that's the it is so dispiriting to like <laughs> tell a joke and just nothing happens and i think part of it is people feel a little inhibited you know they don't want to be the only one laughing or whatever mm -hmm. so uh anyway sorry long answer to your question but the the answer is yeah it's it's a personality thing oh it's a perfect answer and and i detected that it was a personality thing from from the moment uh, we hit record <laughs> i had to, i felt compelled to ask the question nonetheless so dan you've been like i said extraordinarily generous with your time i want to give you a moment to impart any last little bit of wisdom to our audience that you might have reserved um, and maybe tell us the, the social media sites or the, the websites um, on which we can we can reach and follow you. Sure. So um, I don't know that I have any wisdom that would, you know, I want to strike down like a C major chord at the end here. Uh, but yeah, I, I can be found uh, on DT Willingham, uh, Daniel Thompson Willingham, that is, so it's DT Willingham. That's uh, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and then TikTok, I'm Daniel underscore Willingham, uh, if that's your platform. Very good. Yeah, and I, like I said, I visited the Twitter account. It's very lively, very active, very fun. <laughs> um, you'll certainly learn something and, and have a good laugh, I think, uh, along the way. Um, so I think that just about does it for us today. I want to thank you again um, and extends you my infinite gratitude for joining me on this humble little channel. I hope that it was worthwhile. I hope that the uh, interchange of ideas was stimulating. Um, and to my audience out there, again, small though you may be at this point, I thank each and every one of you. Um, I just want to let you know that uh, we're trying to, to have just great conversations with a, a multitude of people and Dan absolutely provided that today, a wonderful conversation uh, from which I really learned a lot. So with that, I bid you farewell from Finneran's Wake. <laughs>